CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is part two of the story of Robert Howard and the murders of Arlene Arkinson and Hannah Williams. In 1994, 15-year-old Arlene Arkinson went missing from her home in Castle Dirk, County Tyrone. After an initial investigation, one man was arrested and then released. That man, Robert Howard, was eventually arrested and charged in relation to the murder of 14-year-old Hannah Williams in London. At the same time, he was charged with the murder of Arlene, and with those pending charges, reporting restrictions were put in place in order to prevent any possible prejudice that might be caused by adverse reporting. Howard was found guilty of Hannah's murder. When Robert Howard's trial for Arlene's murder came about in Belfast in 2005, reporting restrictions were put in place once again as he faced further charges. None of his previous convictions were introduced during the trial, and it was only afterwards when Howard had been acquitted by the jury that the totality of the violent sexual crimes Howard had committed were made public. There was an understandable public outcry that this obviously dangerous man had been travelling freely through various jurisdictions for the past 40 years. The Arkinson family were furious that the man they had felt was the main suspect in Arlene's murder for 10 years was not going to be held accountable, and that there was no level of closure brought for their loss of Arlene. Kathleen Arkinson, the main advocate for justice for Arlene and her older sister, was anxious that the process of an inquest begin, but Howard and his legal team fought to have the process stopped saying that it would, in effect, be an attempt to overturn the result of the trial. The inquest was also dogged with delays caused by the time taken by the policing authority in Northern Ireland handing over documents for disclosure to the coroner's court. One of these sources for delay disappeared, however, in October of 2015. Robert Howard died of natural causes at age 71. He had been transported to hospital from prison, and got the news that he had cancer on the day that he died. 
But Kathleen Arkinson was devastated at the news. According to her, Howard had gotten his way once again and would not have to tell the truth at the inquest. She also expressed again that she and her family felt let down by the police. Kathleen said, quote, The police have held back and held back for 21 years. They have waited so long until he died. I am so angry. We are all angry. End quote. A statement from the PSNI was released citing the preparation of documents as part of the delay in holding the inquest after the coroner directed that the PSNI must review the redactions that they'd made. It continued, quote, The PSNI regret the delay the review has caused and the additional pain that this causes to the Arkansan family. The PSNI remain committed to working with the family and the coroner in order to ensure this inquest proceeds as expeditiously as possible. End quote. The preliminary hearings in the inquest would continue, but without Howard. On the 13th of October 2015, BBC Spotlight reported on the investigation and the struggle to hold an inquest in Arlene's case. Priscilla Gayen appeared in the programme and described the horror that she had suffered at Howard's hands in his Castle Dirk flat and how Howard had gone on to be charged with a lesser crime. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Murray from Kent Police said that his interactions with the PSNI had been difficult. He alleged that they had tried to block his attempts to speak to Arlene's family. They did eventually meet, however, and Detective Chief Inspector Murray was shocked when the Arkinson family were asking questions he thought the PSNI could and should have been able to answer for them. A former RUC and PSNI Detective Chief Superintendent Norman Baxter also revealed to the reporters that before his death, Howard had been close to giving the location of Arlene's burial in order to secure a transfer to Magaberry Prison. But Howard had changed his mind and then died. The next preliminary hearing in the inquest happened later that month and returned to the question of disclosure of police files to the coroner's court. Coroner Brian Sherrod was informed that 33 files had been handed over. A further 10 would be ready by the end of that week and the rest would be delivered by the end of the month. The barrister appearing on behalf of the PSNI said that they were working quote-unquote flat out to get the work done. Sherrod said that if there were any further delays, he would have to call in someone from the PSNI to explain them. Sherrod said, quote, This is a very, very old case now. There are pressing reasons why we all need to tighten our belts and get this work done. End quote. On November 3, 2015, Detective Superintendent Karen Baker appeared before the coroner to explain why they had indeed missed this deadline. Baker said that 2,500 hours of work and almost £75,000 had gone into the case since the April before, but the PSNI also had to resource their new and ongoing investigations, including bomb attacks and shootings. Sherrod set a new deadline for disclosure. What else could he do? At a hearing on the 14th of January 2016, Judge Sherrod said he would issue a formal summons for a former detective, Eric Anderson, to appear and hand over any documentation he might have. It was noted that Anderson had not attended other high-profile inquests, citing ill health, which had prompted the statement from the coroner. On the 12th of February, Minister Ben Wallace approved the public interest immunity order on a number of documents in the Arlene Arkinson files, 
a status reserved for highly sensitive information which is used to protect police methodologies and the use of informants. However, the final decision would lie with the coroner, Brian Sherrod, and he could choose to make these documents covered by the PII public. Finally, the opening day of the inquest occurred on the 15th of February. It had been decided earlier that the inquest would be heard without a jury. A barrister for the coroner's service, Frank O'Donoghue, Queen's Counsel, described how vulnerable Arlene was, noting that her father suffered from alcohol addiction and her mother had died when she was 11. Arlene then stayed with older siblings. She had been sexually abused by her brother-in-law, Seamus McGale, who was convicted in 1993 and served a year for his crime. He had been released from prison just 10 days before Arlene went missing. The coroner's court was told that Arlene had seemingly confided in friends that she might be pregnant by someone close to the family but not an actual family member before her disappearance. But the fact of her pregnancy had never been established as her body had never been found. The court was also told that the 15-year-old had previously gone off before for a day or two, but had always returned or made contact with her family within two days. All of this had made Arlene extremely vulnerable to someone like Robert Howard. Judge Brian Sherrod said that the purpose of the inquest was not a retrial of Howard, or to put the policing authority on trial, but rather to try and determine what had happened to Arlene. Kathleen Arkinson spoke briefly thanking Judge Sherrod for taking the time to go through with the hearing and thanking the legal professionals for taking part. On Tuesday the 16th of February 2016, a hearing into the PII files commenced in the coroner's court. It emerged that the documents covered related to the person who had given the tip to the RUC which had led to the digging up of Kathleen's back garden and an incident where the INLA abducted and interrogated a man thought to be a suspect in the case. Ultimately, very little regarding these incidents would be discussed publicly in the inquest proceedings. On the 18th of February, Detective Constable Gareth Jenkins gave evidence before the inquest. He had been the first officer tasked with investigating Arlene as a missing person. Initially in the case, the Arkinson family had notified social services that Arlene had failed to return to her brother Martin's house when she hadn't been seen by anyone for two days. Arlene had been staying there with him, but had also verged on being taken into care at points. Social services informed police two days after they were notified that Arlene was missing. Jenkins had taken a note of the information he'd been given, not only including Arlene's background, but that she had a possible relationship with Robert Howard, who was then aged 50, and that there was another possible unidentified relationship with a second older man. The initial investigation focused on two main lines of inquiry, the possibility that Arlene had travelled to Birmingham to obtain an abortion, or that Robert Howard was somehow involved. Jenkins said that he knew Howard because the man had been in and out of the RUC barracks signing on for bail in relation to the attack on teenaged Priscilla Gayen. Jenkins had also gone to the house in Castle Derg where Howard was living and Howard had been insistent that he had not been with Arlene on the night she disappeared. Howard said he hadn't been near Arlene's house that night and said he'd seen Arlene the day after being driven around the town by a man he didn't know. Later, Jenkins established that Howard, Donna Quinn, her boyfriend and Arlene had gone into Bundoran that night 
and Howard had been alone in the car with Arlene when he told the others he was dropping her home. The detective constable said that when he challenged Howard about his first inaccurate account, Howard's demeanour had changed and he'd become nervous and reluctant to speak with him. Howard was quote-unquote jittery and ushered Jenkins out the door while denying his car had been in Drumna Bay Park, where Arlene lived. The court also heard a statement from one of Howard's confirmed victims, who had luckily survived the attack on her, Priscilla Gahan. Ms. Gahan described having been held captive in Robert Howard's flat in Castle Derg, where he repeatedly raped the then 16-year-old. Priscilla also told the inquest that at points, Howard had tightened a length of rope around her neck. On the fifth day of the inquest hearings, a former chief superintendent from Kent Police spoke, describing his interactions with the PSNI when he was preparing the Hannah Williams case against Robert Howard for trial. He had travelled to Northern Ireland to disprove the tip about Arlene being in Kathleen's garden, explaining to the coroner's court that this was something he had to do before prosecuting Howard using the similar fact evidence from Arlene's case. Murray was able to secure consent for a technical examination from Arlene's family, which ultimately proved that there was nothing in the garden. But in the course of his inquiries into the matter, he was told that relations between the PSNI and the Arkansan family were hostile, and said that it was his impression that the PSNI were reluctant to facilitate the examination. Then the coroner's court heard from Patrick John Hegarty, Donna Quinn's boyfriend, who had been out in Bundoran with Arlene that night. He had been about 25 at the time. After Arlene went missing, he had been asked to lie about Arlene being with him that night. And although Mr. Hegarty had heard rumours about Howard and his involvement in sex attacks, he had not been worried about Arlene's safety when she went off with Howard that night. Mr. Hegarty said that the whole thing had left him at a loss. He didn't know what to make of it, and Arlene's case had troubled him since. The next day, Donna Quinn gave her testimony, repeating what she'd told the Belfast Crown Court years before at Howard's murder trial. As she and her mother Patricia entered the courtroom, there were emotional scenes, and at one point Patricia Quinn shouted at Kathleen Arkinson as she took her seat. When on the stand, Donna recalled that Howard had asked her to lie about Arlene because he didn't like the Arkinsons, he said, and because he was out on bail. Howard told her that he had never had sex with Arlene and Donna had believed him. She also said that she never again saw Robert Howard wearing the clothing that he had had on the night that they went to Bundoran, but it had never crossed her mind to ask him what had happened to them. Donna Quinn gave evidence again the following day, and the questioning was more pointed. Donna denied allegations that she and her mother knew where Arlene had been buried. She wept as she denied sending Arlene off as some sort of sacrificial lamb to Robert Howard. Donna said that if she knew where Arlene was, then she would have told someone by now. Rather than put herself through all this, she hadn't known the full details of Howard's background until recent times, but said that she had begun to suspect her friend was dead and that Howard was responsible within a week of Arlene's disappearance. This was because Arlene had not turned up and because Howard had asked her to lie. Donna told the court that she had hated Howard, even before she began to suspect he was responsible for her friend's death, that she'd known he was a nasty piece of work. 
Donna alleged that Robert Howard had boiled her pet rabbit and killed kittens and shown them to her. That day, proceedings had to be paused a number of times while Donna cried. Later, the court was read a statement given during the investigation by a taxi driver who said he had information about the case. The document was partially redacted. It outlined that Howard and Patricia Quinn had told a taximan that they were going fishing. He saw them near a forest carrying a shovel sometime after Arlene's disappearance. There were further statements which indicated that Howard and Patricia Quinn had been overheard talking about taking a trip to Pettigo in Donegal at night. Another said that Patricia and Donna knew that Arlene was buried out by the lake in Pettigo. Then, the following day, Patricia Quinn appeared before the inquest. She said that she and Howard had never been in a relationship, though they occasionally kissed and cuddled, and he lived with her and slept in her bed. The reason Howard had ended up staying at her house, Patricia said, was that she'd been asked by CID to take him in so that he could take up bail. Patricia said that they'd asked her to do this, with them knowing that he was up on charges of sexually assaulting a teenager, because having him at her house would allow them to keep an eye on him. But Patricia asserted that their concern over Howard was not because of the danger he posed to young girls. Rather, it was because he was a police informant. Patricia said that at this point, she had had no clue what Howard was really like. Patricia recalled that years after Arlene's disappearance, she had challenged a police officer about Howard's informant status, and the man had replied, quote, I put my hands up, end quote. She took this to mean that he conceded it was true. Patricia admitted that she had lied for Howard, saying that he was home the night that Arlene went missing. But she had later retracted this and said he had not returned to her house until 9am. Howard had told her to lie, but she said she'd gone along with it, partly because if she said he'd been out that night, she felt she would have gotten into trouble too, because Howard had broken his bail. Patricia said that this, this lie, was the biggest mistake of her life. Ms. Quinn also recalled that a few days after Arlene went missing, two of the Arkansas boys called to the house looking for Arlene, but Patricia had told them nothing. Then again, a few days after that, the police had turned up. Patricia said it was then she'd started to feel like something was badly wrong. In relation to the claims that Patricia had been out with Howard with shovels, she denied that anything of the sort had happened. Patricia Quinn was called to give evidence for a second day, and this began with cross-examination by the barrister appearing on behalf of the Arkinson family. But ten minutes into this exchange, Patricia was overcome with anger. She said, quote, I'm fed up with this life. When I go home tonight, you'll never hear tell of me again. I'm going to do myself in. Twenty-one years of this life. The Arkinsons have tried to smother me, petrol bomb me. What did the police do? Nothing. End quote. At that point, the proceedings were halted, and during the adjournment, Ms. Quinn was deemed unfit to continue. Chief Coroner Brian Sherrod told Mrs. Quinn that he had concerns for her welfare and recommended that she seek medical help. He said that he'd be inviting her back on another day to complete her testimony because it was important that the inquest heard what she had to say. After this, the eldest Quinn's son, Mark, gave evidence. He told the coroner's court that Howard had been his mother's boyfriend. 
Mark said Patricia had probably been infatuated with Robert Howard and that Howard had been good to his mother. But Mark Quinn said he never warmed to Howard, even without the knowledge of his criminal history. Mark Quinn said that he didn't agree with the notion put forward by his mother that Howard had been placed in their home by the police. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. School time is just around the corner, but there's still time to eke some of those relaxing activities out of the summer. If you're anything like me, that means finding a sunny spot to sit and play a few levels of my favorite puzzle game, Best Fiends. I've been playing for ages now, and I can't get it off. This five-star rated game is packed with super fun brain challenges and never-ending entertainment. There's always new cute characters to collect or a new level to defeat. And there's over 5,000 if you're up for a challenge. And if you want to race me, you can add me in the game by entering the code 1932267 on the Friends tab of the support menu. Make Best Fiends one of your summer activities. It's always fun, never frustrating, and keeps you coming back for more. Download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Remember, that's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by our best buds, Manscaped. Attention listeners across the galaxy, all the way from Australia to Houston, do we have a pew problem? If so, our friends at Manscaped have cleared you for takeoff with their fourth generation and brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Kick your pubes to the next planet with the Performance Package 4.0. The orbs in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity when you use the best tools for the job from the leaders in male grooming. Join the two million menfolk worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code Men's. Are you ready for an out-of-the-world experience, lads? Look no further than the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your whole solar system. Their new fourth-generation trimmer also features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. A new multi-function on-off switch can engage a travel lock. It has an LED spotlight and it's even waterproof. This spaceship is here to guide you on a journey to trim your body, balls, butt and even Uranus. And don't forget to use Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and their Crop Reviver to help your little planets be on their A-game while they're feeling the sun's heat. Manscaped even throws in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag. Get 20% off with free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. Your space balls will thank you. This episode is also brought to you by Wondery's new podcast, Dr. Death, Season 3, Miracle Man. This is the terrifying true story of Dr. Paolo Macchiarini, a charming surgeon who left a trail of bodies behind him. Right from the beginning, Benita Alexander's relationship with Dr. Macchiarini felt like something ripped from the pages of a romance novel. 
He was a world-famous Italian surgeon who was pioneering a new treatment that could save thousands of lives. They traveled the world together, going on lavish vacations and romantic getaways. It wasn't long before he proposed to her and excitedly promised that the Clintons, Obamas, and even John Legend would be at their wedding. What she didn't know was that this decision would take her to the center of an international medical scandal that would shock the world. Dr. Paolo Macchiarini had lied about everything, and seven people would die before Benita would realize he wasn't the miracle man she thought he was. I've listened to the first two episodes of Dr. Death Miracle Man, and I am entirely hooked. Paolo's story is starting to unravel, and Benita is starting to catch on. I can't wait to hear the rest of the series to find out exactly what Dr. Macchiarini is up to. This is a story that I know will be truly stranger than fiction. Follow Dr. Death Season 3 Miracle Man on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Or you can listen early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or on the Wondery app. On the 2nd of March, a former neighbour of Robert Howard's gave evidence. Bernadette Timoney had lived near to Howard and said that two months before Arlene went missing, the young girl had told her that she wanted £200 to go to England for an abortion. When Ms. Timoney asked Arlene if Howard had done something to her, or if she'd gone with Howard to get the money, Arlene became hysterical. Mrs. Timoney also told the inquest that Howard had told her he was living in a caravan in Castle Derg because he wasn't able to return home. This was, he said, because he'd been convicted of killing a six-year-old girl. There was no record of such an act in his history, however. When asked why Mrs. Timoney had not gone to the policing authority with this information, she said she'd just kept it to herself. She had not made a statement about what she'd been told until detectives approached her 19 years after the fact. The same day, Kathleen Arkinson took to the stand before the coroner's court. She was critical of the policing authorities' actions in relation to her sister's disappearance, saying that they had not taken Arlene's case seriously. She pointed out that Howard was known to have broken his bail, and police could have arrested him at any point. Instead, it took them six weeks, giving Howard an opportunity to destroy evidence, like his car. She pointed out that Howard had been able to sell his car to a person across the border the day before his arrest, in September of 1994. The fact that Kathleen's own garden was searched twice was also addressed, with the barrister for the PSNI posing the question to Ms. Arkinson that wasn't it better for the lead to be followed up on, on the off chance that something was discovered. However, Kathleen wanted the informant named. Judge Brian Sherrod said he had not made a decision on that issue yet. The following day, a former district nurse and neighbour of Howard's on Main Street in Castle Derg, Heather Moore, described how on Saturdays there was always a gang of kids at Robert Howard's house. She said he'd buy sweets for them and let them ride on his motorbike or give them rides in his blue Metro Mini. Ms Moore described him as a Pied Piper type character. Ms Moore also said that it was clear to her that Patricia Quinn and Howard were in a relationship. Patricia was the only other adult that Ms. Moore saw at Howard's flat, and she'd be there nearly every day. In one of her statements to police, Heather Moore had said she'd seen Donna Quinn at Howard's flat the day after Arlene went missing. This was disputed, however, as Donna said she'd been visiting a relative in hospital that day. 
Then Lynette Edgar, a friend and cousin of Arlene's, told the court about visiting Howard's flat on Saturdays, just like Ms Moore had described. Ms Edgar said she'd been to the flat a number of times with friends when she was a teenager, but she knew not to be there on her own. She had warned Arlene of the same thing. Howard was strange, she said. Ms Edgar also said that she didn't believe the rumours that Arlene had been pregnant, saying that she thought Arlene had said it to see if it would get back to her. On the 7th of March, Stephen Walsh, Kathleen's former partner, described how he had been arrested and questioned in relation to Arlene's disappearance. He said he and Kathleen had been victims of a vicious rumour campaign and also asked Brian Sherrod for the name of the source who had given police information leading to the search at Kathleen's house to be disclosed to the public. Judge Sherrod said he would take into account Mr Walsh's comments. Then, former Detective Sergeant Trevor Stevenson gave evidence. He had flown to England after Howard's arrest in relation to Hannah Williams' murder and had spoken to Howard in Deptford Police Station. Mr. Stevenson had what he described as an intense 20-minute conversation with Howard there, where Howard said that he thought about the terrible things that had happened in Castle Derg every day and that he was haunted by them. Howard said he'd see a girl's face in a crowd which would remind him of, quote, the girl, and it would all come back to him. Mr. Stevenson said that he'd told Howard that he believed every person had to pay for what they'd done in the end, and Howard had agreed, but said he was scared of what would happen to him if he told what he'd done. Howard had appeared nervous at the time and was repeatedly making little dents in the foam cup he was holding with his fingernails. He said himself he was a scared coward and wanted to know about what being in prison would be like and if it differed between Ireland, the North and England. His questions had continued and Howard had asked the detective sergeant if fish would eat a body dumped in water. But Stevenson had told him that in fact bodies were often well preserved in water. Howard had responded, quote, Oh my God, end quote. Trevor Stevenson told the inquest that he had no doubt that Howard was talking about Arlene at this time. He said Howard was one of the most evil men he'd ever met, but that the man was also manipulative and may not have been being entirely truthful when he talked about bodies and water and so on, in order to throw police off the scent. Furthermore, while the two were speaking, the former policeman could tell that Howard was being careful and thinking through what he said. Then, Detective Inspector Herbert Henderson, who had worked Arlene's case, described how, after Howard had been interviewed and charged with murder, the man had asked were there any deals to be made, particularly in relation to what prison he might be held in, but the inspector confirmed that no deal was ever offered to Howard. The following day, a number of statements were read to the court from various men who had worked with Howard in construction. Howard was alleged to have said that if he murdered someone, he wouldn't be caught, because he knew how to get rid of a body. One man had seen chemicals in a shed at the back of Howard's flat on Main Street in Castle Derg, and when one of the bottles knocked over, the liquid had melted the metal on the ground. On the 11th of March, a number of social workers who interacted with Arlene gave testimony before the inquest. They said that Arlene had been dealt, quote, a raw hand in life, end quote, and though she often acted quite mature for her age, she was also very childlike and sought out security and safety. 
She had never expressed any desire to leave her family and didn't want to be taken into care. After this, an unnamed woman recounted an experience that she had gone through in Robert Howard's flat about a year before Arlene went missing, when the woman was 14 years old. She had been in the flat a few times before, and this time she was playing hide-and-seek. She'd concealed herself in Howard's room, and when he found her, he pinned her to the bed. In that moment, the woman said she felt that Howard was going to rape her, so she struggled and managed to kick him in the groin. Then she jumped up and ran down the hall to the living room, where she knew Donna Quinn was sitting. She went to tell Donna what had happened, but Donna had a smirk on her face, which made the young girl think that Donna knew what had happened and that maybe it had been planned. The girl ran from the flat and told no one what she'd been through for years, though the woman said that at the time she had warned Arlene off Howard. She made a statement about her close call to police in 2002. On the 14th of March, Patricia Quinn was back before the coroner's court to complete her evidence in the case. She spoke of her time staying with Howard in Glasgow, saying that while there he had kept her locked in the house and wouldn't let her out. Patricia admitted that she now thought she could have been his next victim. She had slipped sleeping tablets into his tea and managed to escape. Ms. Quinn said she told the policing authority what had happened to her when she returned home, but they weren't interested in the story and didn't take it seriously. Patricia recalled that Howard had ended up leaving Glasgow when he was run out. He'd taken an unhealthy interest in a nine-year-old girl and had been caught hanging around playgrounds. His picture had been published in a local newspaper, and after that he could no longer stay there. Patricia said that she'd only found out what Howard was really like during her time with him in Scotland. Ms. Quinn said that she'd lied to police about Howard, but that she'd thought at the time that it was an inconsequential kind of thing. Everyone in Castle Derg had thought that Howard was a good person, she said, and that he'd charmed and manipulated everyone. Ms. Quinn stuck by her assertion that Howard had been an informant but admitted under questioning that she had no proof of this. She also strenuously denied ever having gone fishing with Howard, and that whatever had been overheard in her community about this was wrong. The next day, retired PSNI detective Paul Bennett described the search at Kathleen Arkinson's home. He recalled that Kathleen had become hysterical and had thrown things at the officers, and that she'd had a knife in her hands to try and keep police back. When the officers finally gained entry, she was handcuffed. Nothing was found. During this testimony, Kathleen Arkinson became visibly upset and left the courtroom. The former detective continued, saying that the investigating team had to follow everything up. There were inconsistencies in many of the statements they had in the files, and some of the witnesses were known to have lied. The police were doing everything they could. Mr. Bennett went on to describe an interview he had conducted with Howard in September of 1994, who, he said, was evasive throughout. Howard said that he had dropped Arlene off near a bar in Castle Derg and then gone back to Patricia's. Howard went on to say that the following day he'd seen Arlene in a light blue car with a man in his 20s. At the end of the interview, Howard had refused to sign the statement on the advice of his solicitor. Another retired detective, Neil Graham, was asked to account for the delay in arresting Howard. 
but he said that he didn't know what the reason was and that a senior team would have made decisions in a high-profile case like this. Mr. Graham denied that the investigation had been haphazard. Then on the 18th of March, Eric Anderson, the retired detective chief superintendent, gave evidence to the coroner's court via Skype due to his ill health. He was asked whether or not he held any documentation relating to Arlene Arkinson's case and revealed that he had kept his papers, journals detailing his movements, mileage and expenses, up until 2011, as was set out in the RUC rules. When that time was up, he had destroyed the files by shredding them, as he said he could no longer keep them safe. Mr. Anderson also discussed the decision taken to search Kathleen Arkinson's home and garden and said that the information had been given by a, quote, pillar of society and that the ultimate decision had been made by the former RUC chief constable, Sir Hugh Ansley. When it came to decision-making regarding the arrest of Robert Howard, Anderson said that they, the police, had started five days behind due to the delay in notification to them. They carried out extensive inquiries in the investigation and hoped that this would lead to information which could allow them to arrest and charge someone in the case. But detectives couldn't hold Howard any longer than they had. The retired detective said, quote, If you are saying, did I want to charge him? The answer is yes. If you are asking, could I charge him? The answer is no. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. The decision that was taken was the only decision open to us at that particular time. End quote. Anderson went on to say that after Howard was released from police custody in September of 1994, a covert surveillance operation had been mounted in the hopes that Howard would do something to incriminate himself, but nothing happened. The news of a surveillance operation was a surprise to those who had knowledge of the police files in the case and the coroner directed police to redouble their efforts regarding disclosure of documents and to have particular concern with locating anything related to this surveillance. However, over the next few weeks, police were unable to locate anything in relation to that operation. This drew more criticism of the police's actions in terms of disclosure in the case, though it was pointed out that in 1994, documents weren't digitised in the same manner as they are today, and it was a time-consuming exercise to wade through them. The inquest was then adjourned until April 18th to allow further examination of the 66 folders of material before the court. A review hearing took place on the 15th of April, where Judge Sherrod was told that after consulting with Sir Hugh Ansley, he had no notes or record of meeting with Eric Anderson in relation to the Arlene Arkinson case, nor did he personally recall having made the order for Kathleen Arkinson's house and garden to be searched. When the inquest resumed on the 18th, Anita McGale, Arlene's sister, told the court that she and her little sister had been close. After their mother's death, Arlene had lived in her house in Oma until it was discovered that Anita's husband had been abusing Arlene. Mrs. McGale said that while living with her, Arlene would go and socialise in Castle Derg, but that Arlene had always told her where she was. Anita also dismissed the notion that Arlene was pregnant. The two were very close, she told the court, but she didn't know why Arlene would make up a story like that. Anita was sure that there was also no way that Arlene would have just decided to run away and not contact her family again. Ms. McGale was upset throughout her testimony, and twice they had to break to allow her to settle herself and speak with her solicitor. 
Then, on the 20th of April, Eric Anderson resumed his evidence in the inquest. He said that, early in the investigation into Arlene's disappearance, despite the charge of rape against him in relation to the 14-year-old girl, very little was known about Howard until the RUC had made contact with Angarda Shiakana. They felt that there was no point in going to speak with Howard until they had hard evidence against him. In the meantime, their priority was to find Arlene. Anderson denied he had any documents relating to Arlene's case and said that the UTV Insight programme, which appeared to show him offering documents for sale, was in fact a meeting between the production company and his consultancy firm. It had been edited in a way intended to discredit him, he said, and had caused deep distress. The former chief superintendent also reiterated that he had been present when Chief Constable Hugh Ansley gave the order for Kathleen Arkinson's garden to be searched. Anderson said he had been at police headquarters in Belfast when the decision was made. More detail was given about the circumstances of the tip being made. Mr. Anderson said that he had been given information by officers who told him that the source in this case was a person of integrity and honesty and that he trusted their judgment. He had never asked for the identity of the source. Then, further testimony about the raid on Kathleen's home was provided by former Detective Chief Superintendent Brian McVicker. He had received the information which led to the search through a conduit. The information itself was of a conversation which had been overheard. McVickers said that they had not been told who the conversation was between, but it did seem to be quite close to the family. The person had been afraid of coming forward and the third party, the so-called conduit, had vouched for them to the police. Former Chief Superintendent McVickers said that after his conversation with the conduit and from the demeanour of this person, it was his impression that they were genuine and honest. Still, it was the first time that it was made publicly known that the information that prompted the search was in fact third-hand hearsay. It was also acknowledged that the RUC were aware of a rumour that Arlene had had a secret relationship with Kathleen's then-partner. McVickers said, if anything, the search had helped the Arkansans because it had removed the cloud of suspicion that had developed over them. Then, late on the 21st of April, Brian Sherrod was informed that journals relevant to the inquest had been found. A barrister for the PSNI, Kevin Rooney, Queen's Counsel, told the coroner that he had consulted with a witness the week before and, on the basis of this conversation, had asked for the journals to be located. They were found, but they would require examination to ensure no information would be released which would pose a danger to life or privacy. Brian Sherrod said that he would look to have a decision made in relation to the journals quickly, but they still had to be deciphered. On May 9th, the inquest heard from Sergeant Alan Clark, who worked as a police search advisor. He had been brought in on the Arlene Arkinson case to examine what had been done in the case and to take a new approach in the attempts to locate Arlene. Between 2010 and 2012, large rural areas around Castle Derg were searched by specialist officers and recovery dogs. After a tip was received in 2014 about Arlene having been buried under a bridge near a bog, 90 bridges were identified as possible locations. This was further narrowed down to 13, and these were all searched, but with no results. Sergeant Clark also gave details of the search which had taken place in Howard's former flat on Main Street in Castle Derg. It was hoped that new forensic techniques would provide further evidence in the case, 
and as the building was in such poor condition, it was potentially the last chance to collect them. Items like flooring, doors, light switches were all seized, as well as an old trailer. Sergeant Clark said that there were no plans to conduct new searches for Arlene at that time. On the 10th of May, the next day of hearings, Norman Baxter appeared before the Belfast Coroner's Court. He was a retired chief superintendent and had been brought into the Arlene Arkinson case in 2002. Up until that point, Baxter said, the case had sort of a vague status where it was not closed, but nor was it active. It was his opinion that the case had not been treated as a priority because the Arkinsons were seen as a dysfunctional family with no standing in society. Though there were some officers who wanted to get Howard behind bars, they were, quote, lone voices in the system, end quote. Meanwhile, the Arkinsons were seen like pests and troublemakers, even though they were just trying to get justice. After doing a bit of investigation, the case was simply parked, and everyone just moved on, Baxter said. Norman Baxter explained that his approach to the case was different, and he had made the decision to go ahead and bring charges against Howard based on no new evidence at all. The retired chief superintendent said that this could have been done years earlier, possibly preventing Howard's further crimes. Mr. Baxter rejected a suggestion that he was being overly critical of the initial investigation, saying that he didn't have an issue with the investigative steps, but rather it was the lack of decisions and the time taken to actually bring proceedings against Howard, which didn't happen until 2002, under his direction. He told the coroner's court that at one point, Kent Constabulary told him that they had considered dropping the charges against Howard for Hannah Williams' murder if he'd cooperated with the PSNI efforts to locate Arlene Arkinson's body, though Baxter said that he didn't think that this proposition had actually been put to Howard himself. Baxter also revealed that he was astounded when he found out that police investigating Arlene's disappearance had not been told that Howard was on bail for serious sexual assault. Continuing, quote, everywhere Howard went, he was a menace, violent, sexual, depraved behavior, and the state was ineffective to deal with it, end quote. The retired officer told the coroner's court about how when Howard was charged with Arlene's murder, he'd lost control. He'd then hinted that he'd be willing to cooperate if he was to be transferred to Magaberry Prison. Baxter explained that in this prison in Northern Ireland, there were single cells with toilets and sinks. But where Howard was at the time, in Belmarsh, he had to slop out. There was an adjournment then for a few days, and the inquest reopened on the 17th of May. Detective Inspector Herbert Henderson was back before the court and also recalled that Howard had been dissatisfied with the conditions at Belmarsh, and that he had inquired about a possible transfer to a prison in Northern Ireland. But police had not offered any deals, nor had Howard's solicitor approached them with any offers. Summaries of the transcripts from 25 police interviews were then read into the record. Howard repeatedly denied any involvement in Arlene's disappearance, saying that he hoped she was alive. He denied having a quote-unquote weakness for young girls. He also denied any knowledge of personal ads found in his flat in Castle Derg, which were seeking sexual encounters with women or couples. Police had also found true crime books in the flat, one on Dennis Nilsson and another on Peter Sutcliffe. Howard said he couldn't remember if he'd read them or not. 
any inconsistencies between the account Howard gave and those given by the Quinn family, Howard put down to confusion on their part. Howard said that his flat had been broken into, and said that this was why the carpet had been pulled back and some of his floorboards had been removed, and he suggested that traces of blood found inside might have come from someone during that burglary. The next hearing in the inquest took place a month later, in June of 2016. A forensic psychiatrist who spoke with Robert Howard in jail in November of 1994 took the stand. Dr. Ian Bones described how Howard had approached the various questionnaires and tests administered during their meetings. Dr. Bones said that Howard gave the answers he thought were needed to quote-unquote pass the test, rather than answer the questions in such a way as to provide information to the doctor. If there was a question where Howard was unsure what the right response would be for his purposes, Howard would simply skip it. The psychiatrist told the court that Howard explained the number of teenage girls he kept company with as an attempt to keep himself young. In reality, the doctor said Howard had expended a lot of effort to identify possible victims, spending a lot of money and using his relationship with Patricia Quinn. Dr. Bones said that any slight affirmation, being alone in a car with Howard or smiling at him by Arlene, would have been interpreted as consent, and any refusal to go along with what Howard wanted would likely have resulted in an explosion of rage. The doctor concluded that Robert Howard was a psychopath and had very little chance of any type of rehabilitation given his age, 51 at the time of the interview. At the close of that day's proceedings, Judge Brian Sherrod said he was going to make contact with the Garda Commissioner in the Republic to see if they could offer assistance in a number of discreet matters. The Gardaí had not only engaged in a number of searches directly involved in Arlene's case, but had had numerous interactions with Robert Howard when he lived in the jurisdiction. It was hoped that they would be able to share any information that they had with the inquest to build a complete picture of Arlene Arkinson's case. On the 22nd of June, Chief Superintendent Raymond Murray, who led the investigation into Arlene's death from 2005 to 2014, gave evidence. The most startling information provided was that, while serving his life sentence, Howard had made a number of statements that appeared to be related to Arlene's murder. They were passed on to authorities by a source, which remained unnamed in the inquest. Some of the things Howard was heard to have said included, quote, It doesn't matter because I was found not guilty, but now they resurrect the case. I thought I got away with it. I did. And on my first, I know I got away with it. End quote. Other statements included a description of having a girl's body in his boot, references to a struggle happening in the flat, and that a sex attack took place in his car, and so on. Chief Superintendent Murray said that the statements had been considered as possible evidence to retry Howard, but they didn't amount to enough evidence on their own. This had led to the search of Howard's old flat, hoping for further forensic evidence. To conclude, Murray said, quote, It is my firm belief that Arlene Arkinson is dead. Given the totality of the information, I believe she was murdered during the early hours of August 14, 1994, and the location of the murder was 49A Main Street, Castle Derg, and the person that murdered her was Robert Howard, and that he murdered her in a sexually motivated attack. 
There was another long adjournment in the inquest then in order to try and arrange for information to be shared by authorities in the Republic. By September, the coroner, Mr. Sherrod, expressed his disappointment that there still had been no arrangements for evidence to be heard from the Gardie. He was told that the formalities had to be gone through and they were taking some time longer than had been expected. Then, on the 15th of September, there was a dramatic development when Police Chief Raymond Murray informed the press that a new search had begun in Arlene's case. It was in a field not far from Castle Derg, about a mile away. Murray said, quote, It would be premature to draw any inference from this initial report or the police response to it at this time. End quote. The search was triggered when police received a report of disturbed earth in the area. A farmer who rented out the field for grazing noticed a six-foot-by-three-foot anomaly near to a derelict farmhouse on the land. The land was located on a small rural road and the house was accessed via a small track through a copse of trees. The farmer said he'd usually had sheep on the land and the spot had been overgrown with nettles and grass, but in the last few months he'd had cattle grazing there and they'd eaten down the overgrowth. The farmer noticed that the spot looked to have been dug out and filled back in with stones. Initially, the man told reporters he hadn't thought much of it, but eventually he decided to call the landowner to see if any animals had been buried out near to the old house, but there weren't. So he'd called the police to have them come and check it out. Specialist forensic services were called in and the area was sealed off, but police continued to downplay the possibility that Arlene's body might be found. This proved to have been appropriate. After two days of searching, no remains were found. On September 19th, the inquest convened and Brian Sherrod noted that it had been an emotional week for the Arkansan family. A report was given to him about the search that had been undertaken in the days before. Judge Sherrod also noted that legislation had been passed through the houses of the Oireachtas in the south which allowed cross-border information sharing meaning that the Garda Shiakana would now be able to assist in the proceedings and a meeting had been scheduled. Correspondence continued between the coroner and the chief state solicitor and the Department of Justice in Dublin, but a month later no timescale had been agreed. Brian Sherrod said he believed that facilitating communication between Northern Ireland and Dublin was worthwhile and important for the proceedings and that they needed to continue down that route. By December, legal counsel on behalf of the Arkinson family were also expressing their dismay at the further delays involved in getting documentation from the Republic. The family was deeply frustrated, he said, but he was also tempering his remarks as there had been a senior counsel appointed to oversee the disclosure process in Dublin. In late February 2017, nearly a year after the inquest had opened, there were still outstanding documents to be received by the coroner from the Gardee. But despite these delays, Judge Sherrod said that he believed it was still worthwhile to wait for the material from the Garda investigations. However, in March and then April of 2017, communication was still ongoing in relation to securing disclosure of documents relating to searches for Arlene, lines of inquiry pursued by Gardee in relation to Howard, and a meeting between the Gardee and the Quinn family. When counsel for the Arkinsons said that numerous delays had caused the family distress, Judge Sherrod said, quote, We still have a way to go before I would be in a position to confidently close this matter. End quote. And so finally, on September 8, 2017, two folders of documents were delivered to the Belfast Coroner's Court from the Chief State Solicitor's Office. 
the inquest was now in possession of the complete, exhaustive records of everything related to the investigation into Arlene's disappearance and death. All of this material was closely reviewed. Then, in February of 2018, senior counsel appearing on behalf of the Irish authorities told the coroner's court that an application for the exhumation of a grave had been put in, which related to the Arlene Arkinson case. Three and a half months later, Gardee had opened that grave. The site was first flagged as suspicious in 1996 when the grave was opened for a burial, but a body was found two or three foot below the surface by the undertakers. They reburied it. In 1999, a priest had phoned the Gardaí about the grave, but it was not followed up. Around the same time, a woman had written to another priest to say that she'd heard that just after Arlene disappeared, a man had persuaded gravediggers to bury Arlene's body in the newly opened grave. In this grave, which had caused so much suspicion, a body was found, and it was identified as an adult male. Information made its way to the coroner's court in drips and drabs, Confirmation that the body was not Arlene came in September of 2018, but Brian Sherrod wanted further confirmation that there were no more than the four bodies that were meant to be interred in the site there. He also echoed the Arkinson's family call to know whether all of the remains in the gravesite had been examined, or just one. In the end, nothing came of this investigation into the grave in Sligo. At last, on April 2nd, 2019, the coroner's court was told that all lines of inquiry had been investigated as far as they could be, and they'd heard all the evidence available. The barrister on behalf of the Arkinson family said, quote, This extended process has added to the suffering of those who loved Arlene. This is the final day of hearings, but their suffering will continue long beyond the conclusion of this inquest. Some came to defend lies they told 20 years ago, and the family have no thanks for those witnesses. This inquest has heard sufficient evidence to establish such truth about Arlene's death as can be found. End quote. Brian Sherrod said that the inquest was at a close, and he would need time to draw up his conclusions. The findings of the inquest were delivered two years later, on the 21st of July, 2021. They had been delayed from March 2020 due to, among other issues, the COVID-19 pandemic. Judge Brian Sherrod's conclusion was that, on the balance of probabilities, Robert Howard had murdered Arlene Arkinson on the morning of Sunday the 14th of August, 1994. Arlene was last seen with Howard, who was known to be a violent sexual offender. There was no record of her being alive after that date, and early on the Sunday morning, Howard was already trying to establish an alibi for the early hours of that morning, before anyone knew that Arlene was missing. Nothing definitive was said regarding exactly how Arlene had died or where she'd been killed, but the findings stated that Arlene's body had likely been hidden somewhere in the jurisdiction, given that Howard was familiar with the Castle Dirk area and the border at that time was actively patrolled. There was also very little time to carry this out before light on Sunday morning. The roundabout admissions made by Howard were not to the level of being confessions, but did indicate that Howard was culpable. Brian Sherrod concluded his findings by stating, quote, I would like to reflect on Arlene, who would now be a woman in her 40s, and it is a matter of profound regret that Arlene did not get to live her life and to live to her full potential. 
And I would also like to reflect on the very grave injustice that has been done ultimately to the Arkansan family due to the actions of Robert Howard. And I would like to reflect on the exhaustive manner in which Kathleen, Arlene's sister in particular, has driven this case from the first days after the disappearance right through to today. And that is remarkable. And Arlene herself has been served exceptionally well by her family in the intervening 27 years. End quote. Kathleen herself said, quote, 27 years on from Arlene's murder, I am still searching for her body. What else can I do? What else would anyone expect me to do? Despite what has happened, I have placed my faith in our justice system and went with it. End quote. Kathleen Arkinson also called on the justice minister in Northern Ireland to launch an examination of Arlene's case and to look at it carefully. The Arkinsons still have hope that someday, they'll be able to bring Arlene home. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Anne-Marie Lachnan, Michael McNamara, Ashling, Tanya Maleski, Ailish O'Reardon, Eurydice Aradotir, Kmac, and Caroline Flavin. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes, as well as nifty merch. So head over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Best Fiends, Manscaped, and Dr. Death Season 3 Miracle Man. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched and researched and researched and written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found on the website www.mensreapod.com because there's no way they're fitting in the show notes. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 